Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. Are you aware of the impact of insurance fraud? Well, some estimates put it that there's about $80 billion a year cost to the public. You pay for that. You pay for it. As a matter of fact, for your family, the average cost is about a thousand, almost $1,000. That's a heck of a lot of money to be lost to insurance fraud. Well, fortunately, we have an organization that's fighting it. They have a lot of partners in doing it. It's called the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. And today we have Matthew Smith, who is their uh, director of government affairs and the general counsel for this nonprofit organization. Call for Action has been working with the coalition for years. We're very proud to have an affiliation with them. And so we're hoping that we're going to provide you some useful information today on what's going on around the country in terms of efforts to stop insurance fraud and what are some of the really hot-button issues. Matthew, welcome to Of Consuming Interest. It's great to have you here. I love your publication, The Advocate. So tell consumers right up front how they can get copies of it. Well, thank you, Shirley, and it's great to be a part of Consuming Interest and to have this opportunity to share information uh, with your listeners. And the easy answer to your question, we have one of the easiest Websites that you can possibly ask for. Our website is insurancefraud.org. The only hard thing to remember is the .org, but insurancefraud.org, and you can access information about insurance fraud and some of our publications there. I also have interviewed Jim Quiggle a number of times about your insurance hall of shame, which I hate to say, but I love it. It is so outrageous. Not that I love it in the sense that because people are committing this, but because it really puts a human face on what fraud does to people and lives lost and the money. So anyway, you look at it from a different perspective. You're on the side to look at what's happening across the country in terms of initiatives. So what are some of the significant things that you're seeing happening today? Well, we're coming off of a record year in 2018. Last year, there were 119 different insurance anti-fraud bills filed in the various states. Of that number, 33 actually became new laws protecting consumers in 2018. Now, the reason that's really interesting is everybody thought 2018 was going to be an off year. Of course, we went through the midterm elections, and everyone was thinking with midterms and the potential of a wave that, whether or not it materialized or not, may still be debated, but occurred, it impacted the number of states willing to tackle serious issues. We also had a number of states in 2018 where the legislature was not even meeting. Yet 2018, in terms of consumer protection, really turned out to be an incredible year with everything from workers' compensation reforms to storm chaser legislation trying to put people out of business that come in after a natural disaster to protecting some of the most vulnerable uh, children who literally we have situations where children are murdered for life insurance. And the state of Maryland took a a dramatic step. So 2018, we're closing out uh, with a record number of anti-fraud bills filed. 
course, we're just starting 2019, but some of the big things we're looking at in 2019 from a consumer perspective are not just insurance fraud specific, but insurance fraud plays a role. And what I'm referring to are issues of cybersecurity and privacy rights. Okay. And we expect a record number of states this year to adopt legislation that will help in the fraud fight, but also protect consumers' cybersecurity and their privacy data. So okay. there's a lot going on. Okay, so now we there are a lot of laws on the books. How do these? How are these laws going to differ? For example, um, in terms of fraud, we have lots of fraud laws, and I, I don't mean to be skeptical. I'm just interested from the consumer standpoint. How is it going to impact me differently than the existing laws? Let's go back and take the storm chasers, for example. How do you protect consumers against the people who come into their neighborhood after there's been a natural disaster, offer to help them do work, and then run away with the money, get the insurance money, and so on? So where is... Where are the initiatives that are going to help prevent this? I, I'm I'm curious because you've got vulnerable consumers, and it seems to me like they're the weakest link in this whole chain. Absolutely they are. And having been a longtime resident of the state of Florida and having gone through hurricanes down there, I know firsthand uh, how a lot of this happens and how after a storm, quite frankly, legislatures can't work quick enough to protect consumers. Mm -hmm. So that's why we try to be ahead of the curve. So here's what we deal with, Shirley, and this is, this is why this is important to your listeners and consumers. If you've been the victim of a natural disaster, be it a hurricane, a flood, a tornado, hailstorm, any of those types of natural disasters, what you obviously want to do is get your home or your property repaired as quickly as possible to restore your lifestyle or your business opportunity. So what happens after a storm is these shady contractors come in. They normally come in from out of state, but what they'll do is they'll stop at a quick print and have magnetic signs made up for the side of their vehicle that uses a local name, Maple Park Roofing, or Bayside Contracting, to make it appear that they're a local business. Now, before they do that, they stop and buy what's commonly referred as a track phone. So it's a cell phone that you buy for a very low price, but it has a local number. So they put these signs on their vehicles. They have business cards printed up. They use a local area code and local number to make it appear to vulnerable consumers that they're an established local business. Pretty, slick, truth, pretty slick way of <laughs> getting themselves into the community. Absolutely. When in truth, what they did is they learned about the storm and they drove across three states oh, to yeah. scam consumers. So the storm chaser bills are designed to mandate that contractors and specifically roofers, siders, people like this to work in a lot of storm situations are registered with the state that they have certain safeguards, including liability insurance in place, that they are reputable. So then when a consumer is the victim of a natural disaster, they can check the state registry and find out whether this is a legitimate 
state recognized contractor. Notice I'm not using the word licensed, it's registration. Mm-hmm. Whether they are state registered, whether they are a legitimate business, and not some scammer coming in from out of state. So this is different from what's required right now in terms of, uh, of having a license to do business. Let's just take a brief pause here, Matthew, and let our listeners know they're tuned into Of Consuming Interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Matthew Smith. He is the Director of Government Affairs and the General Counsel for the nonprofit organization Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. And we're talking about some of the initiatives to protect consumers. Okay, I think... I totally understand what you're saying here. The question I'm asking to you, we need to educate the consumers as well. Is that a part of what's going to be going on here? Well, hopefully. Because if the consumers don't know to check this registry, I mean, we've got to get states active in educating consumers. As you can tell, I'm, I'm on the forefront of education. That to me is the big, the weakest link, because consumers don't know sometimes their rights, and they're in a, you know, they're in a paralyzed state when something awful happens. So, how, what part of this is going to be? Are the states going to reach out to their citizens to let them know about this initiative? I guess that's part of what you're going to do. It is. We promote through our website, through our our outreach efforts. Mm-hmm. The states that have adopted these types of consumer protection laws. What then has to happen, though, is the states have to put it into practice. And they're doing a a very good job of that, actually. I remember when the last hurricane came through Florida, driving across the causeway to our home, uh, there were very large flashing signs that said, don't be scammed. Oh, for good, good. Registration. Good. That, so that's need, perfect. Yes, that that is desperately needed. So we need things like that. We need when there are natural disasters that occur, there need to be resource guides that consumers can gain access mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, the NAIC, is working uh, right now and hopefully will adopt in 2019 a publication that will be a, a disaster guide for consumers. Awesome. So it notifies them of what their rights are, right. what their duties are, and how to protect themselves after the occurrence of a natural disaster. The one thing that occurs to me is that consumers are going to have, they may not have access to the internet after a natural disaster. So they may not be able to go to a state registry to find out whether or not this person that's at their door is actually registered to do business in the state. Is there any way to get around this this uh, lack of, of ability to communicate with the, the website? There is. And what we're seeing, and this is dependent upon the state, the degree of the disaster, the location, but a lot of states now have disaster teams that they immediately send in. Okay. And those teams do have access to Internet They can help consumers. If you do have insurance with one of the major insurance companies, frequently they will send a team in Mm -hmm. that also has the ability to connect or provide that type of information to the consumer, even if they 
face just a total devastation sure. where their house and all their property is gone. Well, so I mean, I, I know that, that we've had in our community, when we've had a severe windstorms, uh, some years ago, we used to have a lot of pine trees, and they were constantly being blown over. And I swear people sat outside the gates of our community to wait for the windstorms to come in and rip off consumers because a tree fell on their house. So I, I, uh, I understand the, some of the problems that are, that are going on here. But So education has got to be a big part of this. Let me, let me just move on to a couple of the other initiatives that, that you all t- you, you talked about. And this was the – you mentioned something about asset assignment – Tell me what that is, because I, I really don't exactly understand it. Well, it's actually called assignment of benefits. Assignment of benefits, excuse me. Okay. Not a problem. But assignment of benefits is something that occurs frequently that consumers aren't really aware of. Let me give you a common example of it, but then we'll talk about where fraud becomes more prevalent. Okay. When you or I go to a physician, they run our insurance card, and normally in that process, what we're doing is we're allowing that physician to present our claim to our health insurance provider, negotiate a fee with them, pay the bill, and then we get something back saying, all right, here's what you owe, or here's what your insurance carrier has paid on your behalf. What you actually did in that process was assign over to that physician's office or that hospital, the ability to present your claim to your insurance company. Nothing wrong with that, and and that's done throughout our system, and certainly, although there can always be fraud, that's not what we're talking about here. The ground zero for assignment of benefit insurance fraud is occurring in the state of Florida. Other states, Texas, uh, Arizona, Nebraska passed a law in 2018, deal with this, but not to the degree that Florida does. So here's what happens down in Florida, is a contractor can literally walk up to the door of someone's home and say, hey, let me look at your kitchen, and you may be able to get a new kitchen out of this deal. And what they do is they'll go in, look, and say, oh, you've got a water leak under your sink. That probably means that you you have water damage, you may have mold. Sign here on the dotted line, and I'll handle everything for you. And what they do then, when they sign this assignment of benefits, that policyholder has relinquished 100% of their rights against their insurance company to this contractor who literally they don't know. Oh, oh, wow. I mean, that's scary. So the, the problem here is then you're letting some, you're giving someone else permission to contact your insurance company. You don't want to do that. I would never do that. Not only are you giving them permission to contact your insurance company, you just signed away all of your rights under your policy to that contractor. Oh, my goodness. To make that claim. And you also gave away your right to sue your insurance company. And you assign that over to that contractor. So the only one now that can sue your insurance company on that claim is no longer you who paid the premium. That's the insurance. It is the contractor that got you to sign that piece of paper. And what is that piece of paper called? Is there any way for a consumer to look at it and have red alarm flags, red flags going off? It is called an assignment of benefits or an AOB. 
So what the contractor is going to say to you, the shady contractor is going to say to you, well, oh, look, Shirley, we can make it so much easier for you to get this work done because we will work on your behalf with the insurance company to see that it's done. Is that right? Correct. Oh, boy. You know it exactly, Shirley, and that is what happens. And there's many, many legitimate contractors, and there's nothing wrong with the concept of assigning benefits. But how do you know when there's red flags? I mean, what what should alert consumers? Well, anytime that someone wants you to sign on the dotted line right then and doesn't want to give you the time to review the document, oh, yeah. to have to discuss it with someone else or to have legal counsel advise you if you're feeling pressure to sign, don't what do they're it. promising you is too good to be true, then chances are they're up to defraud you or your insurance company. Gotcha. Let's just take a brief pause here, Matthew, and let our listeners know they're tuned in to Of Consuming Interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Matthew Smith. He is the general counsel and the director of government affairs for the nonprofit organization Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. And we're talking about the ways that insurance fraud can impact all of us. And that one is is really a scary one because, boy, you're letting uh, um, the fox in the hen house on that one when you're assigning your benefits over to someone else and they're going to act on your behalf for the insurance company. Don't do it. Now, There are times, I gather, though, Matthew, where that is acceptable, but it is because you have thoroughly checked out the insurance company, the contractor? Correct. And if you've had it reviewed by someone that's competent to review it or an attorney, someone you trust, you verify that the contractor has a good reputation, it can be a valuable tool. There are certain laws that exist in the state of Florida, though, that may be changed this year by the legislature mm-hmm. or by the courts, which invite this type of fraud and scamming to occur in that state uh, to a very, very high level right now. So oh, wow. Florida consumers especially need to be cautious. Okay, but that can happen to anybody anywhere. Now, you mentioned when we were talking at the beginning something about what Maryland has done in passing a law about children being killed for life insurance. Yes, and that's one of the saddest frauds that does occur still in our country. And this arose from a case that actually occurred in Northern Virginia, where a stepfather took out a half-million-dollar life insurance policy on a five-year-old stepson. Now, not criticizing anyone at all for any type of socioeconomic status, but there was no basis financially to justify that type of a purchase of a half million dollars of insurance. Well, let, me, let me ask, let me just stop you for one second. When would it ever be justified to take out that kind of an insurance policy on a five-year-old? Yep. That's then, a good question. And, and maybe in our society it isn't, but there are certain situations where perhaps it does make sense for financial planning purposes for mm-hmm. to assign that policy over later in life to that child so that they're already locked in. To a, to a lower premium. To a policy. I see. Okay. So there are, that can be a tool. But, Correct. But now, now, in this case, do insurance, companies, do insurance companies look at these kinds of policies particularly hard before they will issue it? Well, that was always the problem with the Virginia case. This policy was taken out, and subsequently, this little boy was murdered by his stepfather to collect a half million dollars under oh, wow. the policy. The agent gave the excuse that he thought the insurance company would investigate 
to see whether the policy should be issued, that he thought it was suspicious, but was relying on the insurance company. Sure. The insurance company, in turn, said, well, we rely on our agent <laughs> to tell us whether or not to write the policy. You've got so a pointing was, fingers at everybody. Correct. So under the new Maryland law, and, and there are several other states that have similar laws, what it does, it doesn't prohibit the sale of these policies, but it puts restrictions on them. And it mandates that insurance companies have to at least investigate the situation before simply blindly writing juvenile life insurance policies. That makes sense to to me, yeah. And to their credit, the uh, Life Insurance Association actually was one of the advocates that spoke in favor of the Maryland bill. Good. Oh, that that is such a horrendous thing. But you know what? It's not uncommon. We've uh, I know we've talked about with the Insurance Hall of Shame. People who destroy their properties, who uh, kill their spouses. I think there was one case of a man who convinced his wife to commit suicide. I mean, I don't know how he did that. He probably drove her crazy being married to him. Um, But it's astonishing to me how people do this. And, you know, I think one of the other things that is also kind of disturbing, I know you all have done uh, surveys of consumers, and many of them think that, oh, oh, it's a little insurance fraud. I'm going to inflate what this is or whatever. People don't view it with the fact that, you know, insurance fraud costs them a thousand bucks a year, and, and that's going to be passed on to your children if we don't do something about it. Well, one of the taglines that we use, Shirley, is insurance fraud, the crime you pay for. That's true. Because each of us does pay. For insurance fraud. And if anyone ever thinks that insurance fraud is a victimless crime. No way. When I talk to legislators and urge them to pass these bills, I put up a picture of a young man named Patrick Wolterman. Patrick Wolterman was a firefighter in Hamilton, Ohio, that in December two years ago responded to a home that was on fire. It turned out that home was an arson fire. Mm. The homeowner set the house on fire. Oh, my God. The firefighter, Walshman, walked in the front door and, because of the fire, immediately fell through the floor to his death. <gasps> oh, my goodness. And left behind a wife of only six months. So I put his picture up and I show legislators and I say, if you think this is a victimless crime, mm-hmm. then you tell firefighter Walshman's widow this is victimless. These are oh my goodness. And real people that are destroyed by the crime of insurance fraud. That is that is absolutely horrendous, and unfortunately, it is not an un, well. It's too common. Let's let's put it that way. But you're you all are are. I'm sure you're pleased at all the state legislators that are taking a serious hard look at the the insurance fraud and what impact it has on their citizens of their states. So. Is this a um, something that's done state by state? I would suspect it is, since some states have greater problems, like we talked about PIP, which is personal injury claims, I believe. Um, we don't have time to talk about that right now. We'll have to come back and do something on that, Matthew, because it's a very interesting subject. Um, but at any rate... I had to look up PIP to find out what it was. I didn't really know what it was, but I did find out it's not something I liked. I can tell you that. So anyway, we're wishing you a lot of success. You must do a lot of traveling and head to a lot of state legislatures to do all this work. We do. And, you know, what keeps us going on it is the fact that we are seeing a lot of consumer support. Our most recent studies tell us that 84% of all Americans are somewhat to very concerned about insurance fraud. Oh, yeah, they so should my be. Jobs, 
to go out and be their voice as we talk to these state legislatures and leaders in Congress about the need for strong anti-fraud laws. I love it. I'm so happy for you all. I'm so happy with what you do. We're so glad to have you on the show today, Matthew. Thank you so much for giving us some insight into some of the horrific problems caused by insurance fraud. Uh, Folks, you've been listening to Off Consuming Interest right here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. My guest has been Matthew Smith. He is the Director of Government Affairs and the General Counsel for the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. And I am Shirley Wicker. If you want to get in touch with me, it's Shirley at callforaction.org. It's Shirley at callforaction.org. And again, Matthew, thank you for such a very interesting discussion on insurance fraud. I am Shirley Wicker, and we thank you for joining us. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP. <laughs>